Thank you all for joining us tonight for KI's first Israel Matters Week. We thank the Silton Family Foundation for underwriting the week's events. This is a family that chose to give to make things happen. And the vision of the family uh, was to make conversations happen in our community that will further discourse, that will further our ability to talk across different positions, across different ways of seeing things, uh, and that help us live into the reality of civil discourse. We're very fortunate tonight to have David Lehrer as our moderator. David is the former counsel and regional director for the Anti-Defamation League's Pacific Southwest region. He's currently president of the local nonprofit community Advocates Incorporated, which works to develop awareness among Angelinos of the common ground we share that transcends race, ethnicity, and religion. Hoping uh, for the Silton family that this is exactly the kind of work that we want to see flourish in our community. This is, of course, the week that uh, Israel is commemorating its fallen soldiers with Yom Hazikaron, which immediately proceeds, of course, uh, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, the celebration of Israel's independence, and I would say survival after declaring independence, which was, of course, in a lot of doubt at the time. So uh, we participate with Jews all over the world in celebrating the fact that Israel is. We discuss together, hopefully, uh, in meaningful and deep and important ways what it means for us uh, to be engaged with Israel. Uh, I am someone who believes that as a patriot, it's my job to both stand for my country whenever called to do so, and it's also my job to think critically about the policies and the people representing uh, my country. That's what we hope to do about Israel here at KI. So thank you so much uh, for choosing to be here tonight to help open uh, what we hope will be an annual conversation about how much uh, and in what ways uh, Israel matters to each of us. I'm told that Julia Hubner is passing around a way for you to write down questions that you might have for the panel uh, to ask after uh, each of them have had a chance to share their wisdom and their experience with you. I'd like to welcome David Lehrer, who will introduce our panelists, John Fitzsimons, Trudy Green, Rabbi Aaron Lerner, Roz Rothstein, and Eitan Davidovitz. Thank you again. I'm Rabbi Amy Bernstein, Senior Rabbi at KI, and I'm so excited to see so many of you here tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. It's a pleasure to be here. The rabbi is taller than I am. <laughs> this is a wonderful turnout, for a, especially for a weekday evening, to discuss a very hot topic in the Jewish community, the state of anti-Israel and anti-Semitism on our college campuses. Having monitored anti-Israel and anti-Semitic activities for several decades, I am well aware that the Jewish community's interest in the campus is a topic that ebbs and flows and tends to carry from deep concern to passive inactivity. <clears throat> Judging by the turnout tonight and by the recent Jewish press, it appears we are again in the period of real community concern. Tonight, we're going to explore whether that concern is warranted, and if it is, what can be done about it. I'd like to spend a moment or two 
Before the panelists begin offering some data to set the stage for a fact-based discussion. Otherwise, discussions of this type have a tendency to veer off into hyperbole and rumor with anti-Israel activities conflated with anti-Semitism and legitimate political criticism being compared to incendiary hate. According to the most recent report on campus anti-Semitic incidents by the Anti-Defamation League, uh, for whom I worked for many years, in 2014, there were a total of 47 anti-Semitic incidents nationwide. That's out of about 4,102 and four-year colleges in the entire United States. That's an increase of 10 events over 2013. They also reported an upsurge of anti-Israel activities during 2014, in many instances related to the Gaza conflict. They range from boycott, divestment, and sanction campaign to apartheid walls to checkpoints on campuses across the country, and of course, much worse. There are commentators who report that, quote, anti-Semitism is taking over college campuses across America. One website lists the 10 worst anti-Semitic campuses with UCLA number nine and Columbia number one. It's, al it's alphabetical, actually, the, uh, the list. It's alphabetical. Is that right? Uh -huh. Okay, so it's a, it makes the top ten. We're all sort of thrown in there together. There was a poll that came out a few weeks ago that purported to plumb attitudes of Jewish students on college campuses and reported that 50% of the students polled said they had witnessed or personally experienced anti-Semitism during the course of the 2013-2014 academic year. The methodology of the survey was questionable, but nevertheless, I offer you the data. The more reliable Pew Center polls did a major survey of American Jews several years ago and offered that, that some data that may account for some of the anxiety that older Jews feel about the college campus and its impact on Jewish students. A discernible decline in the commitment and attachment to Israel among younger Jews. While Jews 50 and over feel very attached to Israel at a 35% rate, those between 18 and 49 feel very attached at a 25% rate. A similar gap exists in those who describe themselves caring about Israel, quote, as an essential part of being Jewish. Those over 50 say it's essential at a 49% rate. Those under 50 do so at a 35% rate. Under 50-year-olds feel that the United States government is too supportive of Israel at an 18% rate. Their elders view it at a 6%, agree at a 6% rate. Those numbers are good reason to be concerned. Yet with all the negative numbers that float around, it is important to keep our concerns in perspective with the position of Jews on the American scene. Last year, the Pew Center published a poll reporting about how Americans feel about religious groups. Buried in the data was both good news and less good news. Americans view Jews more positively than they do any other religious group. On a thermometer scale of 0 to 100, Jews were 63. By comparison, evangelicals were 61, Mormons 48, and Muslims 40. Young people between 18 and 29 were less favorable to Jews than other age cohorts, 60 on the scale of warmth compared to 68 for those 65 years and older. But Jews were still the most positively viewed religious group in the country, even among young people. Young people viewed Jews at 60, evangelicals at 58, Mormons at 46, and Muslims at 49. The ADL, for which I worked for 27 years, and is not in the business of calming people's concerns about anti-Semitism. 
Yet, they concluded a recent report on campus anti-Israel activities with these words. While anti-Israel activity is certainly a challenge many students encounter on campus, it must also be noted that for the most part, Jewish and pro-Israel students do not feel unsafe or insecure on their campuses. Furthermore, while anti-Semitism does occur too often at colleges throughout the country, general respect is the norm and anti-Jewish bigotry is not openly tolerated. The format of the evening will be as follows. One panelist will lay out her view of what is transpiring on campus and that presentation will be the jumping off point for the discussion. She'll present her thesis as to the climate and events on campus and what they mean. Then each of the other panelists will have four minutes to respond and offer their analyses of what's happening. I will then pose some questions to the panelists and try to encourage a colloquy among them. We'll then open it up questions so that you, that you have written down and they will be submitted uh, to someone from the temple who will be circulating over there. If all goes well, we'll finish somewhere around 9 o'clock. The first presentation will be by Roz Rothstein. Roz is the co-founder and CEO of Stand With Us. It's an organization related to Israel education and countering anti-Israel propaganda and activities with 18 offices in the United States, Canada, Israel, and the United Kingdom. She's the daughter of Holocaust survivors and was, before founding Stand With Us, a family therapist. Our second speaker will be Rabbi Aaron Lerner. Uh, oh, we may change the order, but I'm introducing him, and we'll go stick with this order. Aaron Lerner, the incoming director of UCLA Hillel. He was selected for the, boat, for the post despite the fact that he graduated from USC, <laughs> where he attended the Marshall School of Business. Before attending Yeshivat Chovevei Torah, he received, where he received his ordination, he was in business, having closed more than $2 billion of commercial real estate transactions, and I suspect there may be people here wanting to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> Our next presenter will be John Fitzsimmons, a teacher in the Religious Studies Department of Bishop Montgomery High School. He is affiliated with the campus ministry at Bishop Montgomery. He was educated at Loyola Marymount, where he received his bachelor's. What's especially relevant to tonight's evening is John's certification as a master teacher in the Jewish Federation's Holy Land Democracy Project, which educates Catholic school teachers about Israel. Another speaker will be Trudy Green. Trudy comes to the topic from a different angle, her long career in the recording industry. She's handled clients from the Beatles to the Eagles, from Michael Jackson to the Beach Boys. More recently, she's been lecturing at campuses around both here and abroad and his insight as to what she has seen and heard. And finally, Eitan Davidovitz, a addition to the program and a, an appropriate one since he's the only one close to being the age of a student here. <laughs> he's the president of Bruins for Israel, a senior in economics major, and he hails from San Francisco. So we'll begin with Roz Rothstein. Well, good evening, everybody. I want to thank the shul for putting on this great event. And um, and I lit a candle before I left tonight with my family, my, my brother Joe Shalmoni and uh, my husband. And the candle is in memory of my mother, whose yurt site is tonight. And Shalmoni, she was a Holocaust survivor. It's two years since I lost her. So I'm thinking about her tonight. Um, Tonight I'm going to show you a couple of quick films because I think that David is right. Instead of talking about things, it's good to see what we see uh, on the campus. As a matter of fact, we started the organization 14 years ago, not really with the intent of helping students on campus, 
or becoming a campus organization. Our intention was to you know, speak with the Los Angeles Times 14 years ago. Uh, we were upset about their reporting. We wanted to have a rally and support Israel. Um, and it was not our intention to go on the campus. But once our name uh, became uh, known and the work that we were doing became known, students began to approach us. They were very, very concerned. Uh, neighboring schools, na- neighboring universities here, they wanted us to see firsthand what they were seeing. And until I actually went, it, it really is a lot of hearsay and, and a lot of assumption. Uh, I really needed to see it. Once I saw it, it was the beginnings of what we're seeing today. Uh, it was uh, pretty upsetting, and I actually had to start taking blood pressure medication. Uh, I did. Uh, for about a year, I had to take blood pressure medication because of what I saw. Uh, but uh, I did adjust, and uh, and today I'm much better, so I don't have to take blood pressure. <laughs> I'm used to it now. Um, so what is it that we're seeing, and why are you here tonight? Uh, I think we're here to learn a little bit more about the uh, the movement that is uh, that we're witnessing. It's not just a campus movement. It's a movement that is um, has designated Israel for criticism, for isolation, for punishment, and uh, the campus is just one of the places that they have uh, they've been working on. It's not about UCLA or Irvine or or you know uh, wherever. It, it, it's it's a movement that is working the same way, the same way, the same way wherever they have designated their uh, their target. It is the BDS movement, the Boycott, Divestment, and Sanctions movement. And it is a movement that has unified all of the different uh, bits and pieces that we saw 14 years ago. Now, the difference is this. 14 years ago, there was a professor here, there was a panel there, there was a, you know, a wall here or street theater at a campus, you know, with, with bloody babies on the floor. Um, I mean, fake babies, dolls, you know, with, with blood. Uh, here and there, you would see these kinds of, you know, things. But, but now, they're much more organized, uh, they're working together, uh, they're not like the Jewish community. Uh, that that can't figure out quite how to work together. They can't agree on much. That that some people say there's really not a problem on campus, and other people say, wait a second, there's a problem on campus. And and they they really do walk together. They really do find ways. And the BDS is the way that they have unified themselves so that they can uh, work together in a much more powerful way. So uh, what we saw as scattered efforts years ago, in around 2010, there was a, um, a conference in Detroit. It was the uh, United States Social Forum, and it brought together 10,000 people that studied a strategy for the BDS movement. And since 2010, in my book, that was watershed for me because I saw a real change. And that is when we saw this uh, coalescing of uh, people who have decided that they're going to target Israel uh, as, um, you know, for, for punishment. Now, the first video that we're going to see is a picture 
of what we have seen at the various divestment hearings on campus. So what is a divestment hearing? Just for, does everybody know what a divestment hearing is? Okay. Well, uh, this is what it is. It is the, the way, uh, Israel will be smeared in a hearing at, at, at a campus. Um, the, the, the goal supposedly is to talk about a bill, a resolution that will call for divesting funds from companies doing business in Israel. That's what the proposed goal is for the night. Whether they win or lose, they smear Israel's name. This is not going to be about winning or losing. This is going to be about the act of smearing Israel's name. That's what this is about. And so this is what we see on college campuses and we've been, we've been very involved. Uh, we fly our staff uh, to campuses across the country. We are constantly in touch with the students, with the Hillels, and we work very closely, shoulder to shoulder, uh, to make sure they have talking points, etc., what they need. Whatever they need, we give them. Uh, but it's pretty upsetting. And it's asymmetrical. There's one side that has targeted Israel. And the students that are mainly the Jewish students who have, who understand that the Jewish star is a symbol of their Judaism. They take a look at a flag of Israel and they see the Jewish star and they feel connected to the state of Israel. So when Israel, the only Jewish country, is targeted on their campus, they cannot help but feel connected. And so this is how it goes. They feel connected. They feel assaulted. And you know what? Our students that are pro-Israel or even just even, you know, neutral did not go to school to fight for Israel. It is not their raison d'etre. It is not the reason they went to go to go to school. They go for grades. They go for fun. They go for relationships. They want to graduate. They want to go to graduate school. They did not go to school to become a warrior for the state of Israel. In contrast, again, it's asymmetrical. The other side is working really hard together targeting the state of Israel. So you have this asymmetry and people wonder, what's wrong with our kids? Why is it, why why are they not more prepared? Why didn't they, you know, listen, you, you could hear about a, a, a divestment hearing that's coming up next Wednesday. And our kids are, are, are busy. And all of a sudden they're faced with, oh my God, next Wednesday, we better have a meeting, we better decide what we're doing. Meanwhile, the other side has been prepared for months. Asymmetry. It's very important that you look at it that way. Let's take a look at the first film. I'm sorry in advance. It is very upsetting to watch this, and we watch this all the time. I watched it twice this week, live at campuses with divestment hearings going on. So how does this work? Something's going to happen. Imagine this. Would it be possible for the Ku Klux Klan to target U.S. campuses to spread their agenda freely? 
Would the Westboro Baptist Church be able to reach hundreds of thousands of students simply by posing as social justice activists? become the campus wing of the boycott divestment sanctions movement. It's the largest anti-Israel student group in America with over a hundred chapters in the U.S. and Canada. SJP speaks about human rights and freedom. Because we can unite in our fight for universal human rights. Everybody just wants to live. Because we believe in people's rights. But their actions tell a different story. You were learning some fake flyers passed out by students. Eviction notice. We regret to inform you that our suite is scheduled for demolition in three days. We support the In the different segments of society, you have different uh, groups bringing uh, divestment and, and sanctions and, bo- and uh, boycotting to the different segments, like uh, uh, the cultural arts, 
and we're going to hear about that tonight, or unions, or churches. They have, you know, different people doing different things. On the college campuses, we have mainly SJP, Students for Justice in Palestine, who bring the, these kinds of campaigns to, to campuses. And as you heard, there's over a hundred SJPs across the country and in Canada. Um, and they have a strategy, and we try to have a strategy uh, because the students are busy, uh, and the students keep graduating, and so you have new students to train each, uh, each new year. Um, it's a real problem because they have a clear strategy. They keep their strategy from year to year. They train each other. It's, uh, it's very clear to them. And our side, you know, uh, from year to year, it's a different story, different leadership. Uh, I found out today that the SJP graduate students at UCLA are mainly in charge of the SJP at UCLA. So, um, graduate students. So, so you have them grow up in the system. They understand where the pitfalls are, and then they become the leaders on those campuses. It's a real problem for our side, for our kids. Um, I'm going to show you now one very quick one-minute or two-minute film, and then I'm going to sit down. Uh, my point is that uh, in this film that they have a clear strategy and you will see it, they are very well trained, and they have their rhetoric, they're very, very well trained, and uh, so you'll get, you'll get a glimpse of that in this next film. And then I'll look forward to further conversation. My name is Thank you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very slow process. Some people say, well, I'm not getting, nothing has changed. Why are you fighting this when you haven't done anything? But it's a very slow thing. Small things, small divestment victories mean a lot because it shows that our work has slowly gotten there. Well, it's happening across different campuses and it's picking up a lot of momentum. Even just looking at it logistically and looking at it from an international standpoint, um, Israel has, I think, a total of 80 UN violations that are on paper, that are recorded and condemnable by the international community as a whole. A lot of the people, when they think of Hamas, and they think of Fatah, and they think of the Palestinian Authority, they have these vivid images of, you know, people firing rockets or, like, holding guns or something. They don't know the humanitarian side of Hamas. The Hamas that most people think of it is the militaristic wing of Hamas. If you can even call it a militaristic wing, they have, you know, basic weapons. They have the, the thousands of rockets that people talk about being launched to Israel. They're made of aluminum tubes and fertilizer. And they're not explosive tip. And then they don't have a guidance system. It's literally like firing a bottle rocket in any direction and just hoping you'll hit something. They have the same accuracy and threat to homes and lives as bottle rockets. Bottle rockets are dangerous, but they're not F-16 white phosphorus dangerous, and those are weapons that Israel uses. They've allowed the UN to have buildings there, which Israel's repeatedly bombed. Every single ceasefire that was broken, when you look at it, Israel has broken that ceasefire. Hamas is a political organization. It was democratically elected, but at the end of the day, this is a human nature. Obviously, it's, it's hindering talks, but at the same time, my personal opinion as an activist in this community, I think that it's, it's not unjustified. Our next speaker will be Rabbi Aaron Lerner of UCLA Hillel. So I want to start by uh, thanking KI and thanking all of you uh, for coming out. Um, the UCLA students have been on a bit of a tour. Uh, the community does care. And I've seen in a lot of local synagogues and a lot of uh, other forums that your support and solidarity with our students has been phenomenal uh, and is appreciated. I want to say thank you to Roz uh, as well. I was on the phone with um, one of the researchers uh, who works with Stand With Us just this week, um, who was helpful to me on two separate issues, one in dealing with the media uh, and another with dealing with a resolution, and, and we're grateful for that. Um, thank you. So I want to echo a few things that I heard uh, come out of the presentation. Um, some of what came out of, uh, you know, Roz is certainly our experience at UCLA. Um, and by the way, I was on a phone call earlier this week with the Wexner Foundation, and it's, it is uh, striking how similar the experiences that people are having on campuses around the country um, are to what we're experiencing at UCLA, uh, which is that we are experiencing a highly organized group uh, of students and activists um, and people who have invested in studying psychology to understand how their messages are going to um, seep into the heads of, of young people on college campuses. Uh, she's also right that the divestment resolutions, like we focus a lot on the votes, right? Did they win or did they did they win or did they lose? It's beside the point, right? The votes the votes are not why they're why they're doing it. They're doing it to defame and delegitimize the state of Israel. Period. Right? And the more that they can repeat words like apartheid, the more that they can repeat words like genocide, the more that they can problematize the state of Israel uh, in the minds of young people, the more that they hope 
uh, that those people are going to actually go out and probably vote differently. At the end of the day, that's the only thing that really matters. Uh, the UC regents have said they're never divesting from uh, Israel. Stanford, the president and the, and the board have just said we're never divesting from Israel, right? <laughs> In fact, if you look at the partnerships that uh, USC, UCLA, Stanford, all of these schools have with uh, Israel, not only is it functionally impossible um, to do, but it's also completely impractical, right? We have we have an incredible partnership with Israel uh, at UCLA and with their academic institutions. So really what they're after is defamation and delegitimization. Uh, the other thing that I want to say, and if you remember only one thing that I say tonight, it's that UCLA is a safe campus. And pretty much every other campus in the country that I know of is a safe campus for your kids to go. And the worst thing, the worst message that you could possibly get uh, out of a forum like this is, oh, I'm not going to send my kids to Irvine. I'm not going to send my kid to UCLA. I'm not going to send my kid to Stanford. Because nine kids got together, right, nine 20-year-olds got together, uh, and they asked a really wildly inappropriate uh, maybe racist and bigoted question uh, of a student at UCLA or of it or of it, you know, at Stanford, and therefore I don't either want to give them my dollars or my student. In those cases, you actually would be uh, doing two things that are really detrimental to our Jewish community. One is you have to understand that pro-Israel advocacy on campus exists on a foundation that is Jewish life. David, you spoke about Pew before. Uh, there's an absolute correlation in the Pew study between your Jewish identity and what kind of house you're coming from and whether or not you wind up being uh, pro-Israel, that's whatever you want to define that as, in your orientation. So and I, that's what we're experiencing at UCLA as well, right? 60% of the people who we're counting as Jews on our campus come from intermarried houses. Um, and that's a, it's sort of an interesting other uh, tidbit, but the students, the five to six hundred students who Aton works with uh, as the president of Bruins to Israel, who are actively involved and willing to go out there uh, and stick their necks out, then five to six hundred sounds like a lot of people, are primarily people who are also engaged with their Jewish identities. The two are one and the same. And the weakness that we see coming uh, from, and I'm glad, by the way, to see a lot of, I think, high school students um, here. It's awesome to see you guys. Uh, and thank you to your parents for, for taking you. The weaknesses that we see uh, on campus and in our community are actually about the weaknesses that we see in our Jewish uh, in our Jewish life for people who are 13 to 18 years old, that they are not making meaningful connections, neither to their Jewish identities nor to Israel. Uh, so the two, the two are the same. It is true uh, that our students have been struggling against uh, four individual attempts to pass BDS uh, at campus over the last 18 months, and that's trying. Um, I also want to throw out there that uh, to be a Jewish student at UCLA, and I passed out some uh, flyers with our, a letter from our students, it's actually a really phenomenal place to be. And that when we talk about five to six hundred students who can get mobilized, we're also talking about fifteen to seventeen hundred students who are involved in Jewish life there. And we've actually seen as a result the only the only silver lining, and don't quote me if there's any media in this, the only silver lining that I've seen from any of this uh, is that Jewish identity work that we do with young people is actually bolstered. Uh, because of their experiences on campus. So it sounds counterintuitive, but actually, for the first time, when you see somebody who is forcing you to say, yes, I'm Jewish and I'm proud to be Jewish, or actually, no, I don't want to get involved 
with that stuff, you're actually going to seek out your community in a different kind of way. So about two years ago, we saw our Shabbat numbers, which is often my litmus test for what's going on in Jewish life at UCLA, go up by about 50%. And it's directly correlated with this. So that's just an interesting tidbit uh, in the ways that those two things are, are related. Uh, B- yeah. <laughs> All right, John, please tell us about your experience. Uh, thank you very much. I appreciate being here, the token Catholic in the room. And I'd like to speak about a group that we haven't mentioned. We've mentioned the, the Jewish student body and also the, the anti-Israel student body. Let's, I'd like to talk about the rest of the students on campus. The um, Jewish Federation in 2003 and 2004 worked with the Catholic Archdiocese of Los Angeles and created something called the Holy Land Democracy Project. And I was on the very first trip in 2004, and the idea is that Catholic school teachers would go to Israel and then return to the classroom and teach about Israel. The program has expanded over the last 12 years. We also bring charter schools. We've brought a few Christian schools and some regular old public schools. You would probably be interested to know I teach uh, 9th and 12th grade at a Catholic high school. And for the last week, my ninth graders, well, today they were reading the Israeli Declaration of Independence and analyzing it. Uh, yesterday, I did my famous Jewish history in 45 minutes lesson. <laughs> Absolutely. You'd be, you'd be interested in how we've, what we've narrowed it down to. And actually, it's a very simple goal. The goal of this particular one is, why did the Jews need a land of their own, and why does it need to be this piece of land? It's, it's fairly straightforward. The first day, which we did on Monday, I believe. Today is Wednesday, right? If it's Wednesday, it must be Belgium. Um, on Monday, we did something called the People Montage, where I have... 18 pictures of people, and I asked the children to identify if they're Jewish or not. And we get the stereotypes, and I tell them, don't worry about it. We get the stereotypes out in the open, and the students, well, some of them are pretty clever and know how I operate, but all of the people in the pictures are Jewish, and they are also all Israelis, and I took most of the pictures. Um, tomorrow I will be teaching about the land of Israel and the history of Israel beginning in the late 1800s. Um, I have noticed that when we do talk about Palestine, we always stop in 1918 because they don't like to go before that. I will tell you that my students know almost nothing about Israel when we go in. I will show them a picture of me riding a camel, very uncomfortable experience. And they think that's what Israel is, and they're quite surprised to find out that it's not. I teach in a very diverse classroom, and my students look at Israel and they see themselves. I believe that probably the least tapped resource is Catholic and Christian evangelical students. They don't know anything about Israel. When they do learn about Israel, they are surprised and shocked, and they very much become pro-Israeli. I've been to Israel five times myself. I have taken students one time. I would like to take more students. The economy is not great right now. 
I had a meeting a couple years ago over the intercom. I said, anyone interested in visiting Israel, come to Mr. Fitz's classroom at lunch. I went over and grabbed my lunch, and one of the teachers said, uh, John, there's people out in your hallway. I said, well, why the heck aren't they in the classroom? They said, oh, they are. I had something like 85 to 90 kids. One of the things that I emphasize to the teachers and to the Jewish Federation, the program has changed over the years. Initially, the idea was, well, let's give them all the facts and the figures and let's convince them of the rightness of our cause. Um, Good luck with 14, 15, and 16-year-olds doing that. Um, They're not particularly interested. As a Catholic, I cannot tell you how connected I am to the land. I don't think I can emphasize enough what an experience it is for me. I want my kids to fall in love with Israel because that's what happens. We can talk about the facts and the figures later. I do start them off with that. I do give them the general idea. But my students, at the end of the week, don't want to go vote. My students want to go to Israel. And... And I see on Facebook, I'm friends with an awful lot of my former students, and a lot of my students are radicalized when they go to college. It's not just about Israel, it's about all kinds of things. Most of them get over it, eventually. But my students who have graduated from my class, my students who know what Israel is all about, they don't fall for it. My nephew, my my brother's in the audience today, his son went to Cal State Fullerton, uh, Fullerton had some, some uprisings recently, and I asked Timothy, um, how did it affect you? He said, oh, I, well, I had to go to class. 30,000 students at Cal State Fullerton, and he walked by. He says, and I go, Timothy's an actor. He kind of looked and said, idiots, and walked on to class. So I think there's good news. I think there's a lot of good news out there. Thank you guys very much. Please, before Trudy starts talking, if you have questions, please write them down. And I'm not sure who's going to be coming around. But our, oh, we're an official cigarette lady here to catch the to get the uh, questions. So, I, does everybody have something to write with, or do you have pens or pencils? And the questions here. It's okay, Trudy, you're up. Okay, hi everybody. I'm coming from this at a little different point of view because I haven't had the actual experiences in colleges that all these wonderful people on the panel have had, but I have had a lot of experience with all the young people all over colleges. I speak in all the the music departments at colleges and young people all over the world. And the one thing all these students have in common is the love of music and the love of all entertainment. And that's the one thing that can bridge the gap and bring all of us together. We at the Creative Community for Peace believe in the power of art and music to build bridges for peace. Peace to us is the most important thing. The, um, the problem today is that they're taking the rights of artists away and their freedom of choice away 
in being able to go and perform in Israel. They are taking the rights of Israeli artists away to come and perform in other countries all over the world. They are taking the rights of artists away to go to colleges and universities and perform to young people all over the world. And this is not right. This has to be stopped. And this is something that the Creative Community for Peace really stand for. We believe there is strength in numbers, and we are all part of a peaceful group. We support artists in wanting to go to Israel and students being able to see them. We support the right of freedom of choice and for artists to not be harassed and that there should be no cultural boycott, campaigning, singling out Israel and only Israel for a cultural boycott. No one has the right to try to stop international artists from performing in Israel and Israeli artists from performing abroad. We all have a right to be able to live in freedom and artists have a right to be able to go to Israel. Artists who have made negative statements about Israel, and these are other artists, on tours, in social media, in the press, and people who have made anti-Semitic statements from our community. Unfortunately, are artists such as Roger Waters from Pink Floyd, Alice Walker, Russell Brand, John Cusack, John Legend, Mark Ruffalo, Rob Schneider, Mia Farrow, Penelope Cruz, Brian Eno, Zach De La Rocha from Rage Against the Machine, where I actually stood at a concert with him as an opening act for one of my bands, and he got 60,000 people in the audience to stand up and say, down with Israel. Boycott Israel. In our show, it was really horrendous. So, and nobody is stopping this. Anyway, BDS are very active and will constantly send letters, take, take up petitions, and try to harass artists not to go. But some artists, like the Rolling Stones, Alicia Keys, Scarlett Johansson, Cindy Lauper, Alan Parsons, and others will bravely stand up against them and go. The Rolling Stones who, yes. Yay! 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 The Rolling Stones who I personally managed and are personally friends of mine basically confronted Roger Waters as he's making mud of their name all over the place because they're going to Israel and told them who is he to tell them where he should go, where they should go and play. And basically, told Roger Waters what to do with his feelings. They went to Israel and they actually told me it was the best concert they've ever played in their career and they are so happy they went. So that is amazing. Just to finish off, other artists who have gone to Israel include Justin Timberlake, Elton John, Paul McCartney, Madonna, Rihanna, the Black Eyed Peas, Metallica, Lincoln Park, Lady Gaga, Akon, Just Alicia Keys, 30 Seconds for Mars, Barbara Streisand, The Kaiser Chiefs, Pet Shop Boys, Guns N' Roses, Julio Iglesias, Burt Bacharach, Cindy Lauper, Placebo, and our wonderful Chris Cornell. But there is something we can all do. And we all need to take action. We cannot sit around, talk about this, and do nothing. 
So what we are asking you to do as part of the Creative Community for Peace is I would like you to hold up your cell phones right now and sign up to our Creative Community for Peace website and our Facebook page. With your help, we can turn this around and stop this. You can sign our anti-boycott petition by going to Creative Community for Peace, and you can share this, please, with your friends. You can join our Facebook page. You can join our Twitter page. And with your help and support and engaging your friends, we can change this. We all need you to be active and help our artists be able to go to Israel. Thank you. And appropriately, we'll close it out with our student, our lone student on the panel, Eitan Davidovitz. So hello, everyone. Um, thank you again for putting this together, and thank you for all the remarks that were made so far. Um, so I'm currently a senior at UCLA. I am the president of Bruins for Israel, which is the pro-Israel group on campus. Um, coming, kind of explaining the way, which is kind of what was being said before, um, is that I did not come to UCLA with the intention of joining pro-Israel groups or being an event planner. Um, <laughs> is we So as I went to Jewish schools my whole life, and uh, especially a Jewish high school that considered itself very pro-Israel, actively Jewish and everything, but they never prepared me for anything that was to be expected in college. And I think that is something I will take back with me once I graduate. Um, as I made my way into UCLA, I we freshman and sophomore year were not very active and there was kind of a more quiet time. And so that's when I kind of started joining Bruins for Israel. You, Many of the students were not very actively involved because there was just nothing going against us. Then in junior year, uh, last year, we had our first divestment hearing and that was the 12-hour-long meeting that went through the night where we had nine hours of public comment and three hours of deliberation um, and that was where we rolled out the entire Jewish community. Everybody was there. There was like five to 700 people. And it was just two lines in a room, pro and against. And it was literally just a line down the middle. It was like a battleground. Uh, and then, so that happened. And that's when the entire community kind of shifted and woke up and kind of felt a very strong connection to this whole thing. And they all... Everyone started getting involved. Everyone said, what can I do to help? How can we do? What can? What is there that we can do? And then Yom Hatzmaut happened that three months later, and that was our, our biggest Yom Hatzmaut ever. Everyone rolled out. Everybody was super excited and proud and waving the flags all over campus and very excited. And then <clears throat> we've dealt with divestment three more times since then where we've had the graduate students, which was for the unions, We've had the our, our own divestment once again, and then we also had UCSA, which is the University of California Students Association, where they also divested from the United States of America. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's getting to a point where it's kind of becoming a little ridiculous, to be honest. And... In terms of this year and kind of like as becoming president, we we started realizing that just going about and just saying, well, oh, Israel's this, Israel that, it was being 
not very effective. And in terms of the way we handled divestment this year was a very big shift from the way we did it the year before in that we realized it was a forum that it was not set up for dialogue. You cannot facilitate any kind of anything in that space. And you would just sit there for six, nine, 12 hours to be shouted at and to be called a apartheid and oppressor and everything. And so we decided that that's not a forum that we're going to even participate in, and so we we basically boycotted the boycott. <laughs> and so, and in doing that, that was the day that, so we held a separate meeting, our own meeting, where we discussed kind of what would be our solution to the conflict, and we brought in Bruin Republicans, Bruin Democrats, the Christian students on campus, kind of everyone who just didn't care to sit in a shouting match, and we had over, I think, 200 students that was held at a separate event. We made the front page of the Daily Bruin that next morning. So we kind of destabilized the, their headlines. And that weekend for Shabbat, we had over 300 people that came. We just, the room was over flooded. So we really wanted to not only delegitimize their own divestment hearing, but we also wanted to strengthen our own community, make sure that our community members feel that they have a home on their campus and they can feel proud to wear a kippah, to walk outside, to have a Jewish star. And so in doing that, we created like a strengthen your own community campaign. And so out of that, we created a much stronger Jewish community than we had ever before because we didn't want to allow our own students to sit through a meeting where they're shouted at, and when you walk out, you feel like you're, you're going to cry because it was just so terrible. And coming into this quarter is where we kind of, we started something new because we realized that going through and being pro-Israel is, it's becoming a much more nuanced and much more complicated situation. So we decided we're going to start over. So we decided to start from the beginning and talk about Zionism because that's something that is, the word has been destroyed on campus. Zionism is racism. And so we started a We the Zionists campaign at UCLA. And what that, the purpose of that was to kind of start over is that when we talk about Israel and the conflict, and that's all we ever talk about. It's kind of a, a secondary, it's a level two conversation when we're not really talking about the reason Israel was there, the history, what led to it, what what is Zionism today, what do we see as the future of Zionism. And so what we did there is we decided that let's start by teaching everybody about Zionism. And it pushes kind of SJP and the pro-Palestinian into a corner because suddenly you're saying, I'm not talking about Israel, I'm talking about Zionism. Do you think the Jews have a right to reestablish themselves in their ancestral homeland. And if they tell you no, well, then you're a racist, so I'm not going to speak to you. <laughs> so that kind of pushes it into a corner where you... Yeah, sorry, I'm going to end right here. But that was the campaign we started, and it's become incredibly successful. People have been really reaching out to join it, to be a part of it. And it's just, it's starting again, and it's building our way back up to the top without letting ourselves be defined by this narrative that SJP has defined us. So that's just... Sorry. I'd like to thank all five of our panelists for very succinct uh, uh, remarks. And I'd like to throw out a first, the first question. Watching the videos, I think one of the uh, benefits of all the gray hairs that have been around for a long time and I think I could have put a video like that together in the 70s. I could have done one in the 80s, maybe not in the 90s. 
when peace talks were going on, but then again, probably in the in the in the first decade of this century. Uh, and how much do you think this is a function of youth, of the extremism of young people, the passions of young people, the hormones of young people? And the good news is, I, I think you know, somebody said, oh, John said, they eventually grow up. Uh, and the, the good news is, and, and I must say, in just a comment to Roz, in the eight, 70s and early 80s, the Organization of Arab Students was organized across this country. The University of California, Riverside was a testing ground, and it wasn't just rhetoric that was anti-Zionist, it was anti-Semitic, and it was violent. I mean, kids were getting beaten up at UC Riverside in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, actually, at Berkeley, there were some physical confrontations as well, which a Jewish chancellor didn't respond to very well. But how much is just a function of, you know, we get very excited about it, but this is kind of like the life cycle of, uh, of students on campus, and that, you know, we should be concerned, we should help our kids respond, but, uh, you know, we're not chicken little, the sky isn't really falling. Anybody want to take that one on? I'll take it, but I, I need a, mo a mic. Hello. Um, okay, so in, uh, in the year 2000 at Berkeley, uh, there was one SJP group. Uh, now there are over a hundred. Uh, they are extremely well organized and they are in lockstep. The difference is that what we saw when you're talking about the 70s and 80s, what we saw then uh, was much more haphazard. What happened to me on a campus, on a college campus, was different from what happened to someone else on the East Coast. Uh, it's now very organized. They have campaigns. They're getting their instructions. There are, there are very significant multi-million dollar groups that are giving the students strategies from outside. They pretend they're not getting these strategies, but they're getting strategies from outside groups. Just like Stand With Us does advise students and, and works with, uh, uh pro-Israel organizations because, uh, you know, we, we perceive the whole situation in that the students are being attacked because Israel is being attacked and they, and they identify with Israel. So we feel like we have to. We have to. The, the students feel they have to respond. They had to put together the, you know, we the Zionists. I mean, the, they're doing new things now to respond to the attacks to the asymmetry. So the difference, in other words, bottom line, the difference to me, uh, looking back at the history, and I too have gray hairs on a different day, um, <laughs> Uh, and I remember well. It, it's just very different now. It's very organized. So I'll, so I'll take on the um, specific the specificity of the social media question. Uh, it, there's no doubt that social media is uh, helpful in some cases, right? We shot a video this past year with which Raza's help had a hundred thousand views, right? It was somebody stood up on a chair and and um, you know took a video of Aton and 150 of his friends protesting outside of this divestment meeting where there was uh, a divestment from the you know from the American people. Uh, and social media, so it can be helpful, and social media can be a weapon. And if you haven't watched Monica Lewinsky uh, on TED, on the TED Talks, you should watch it. It's 20 minutes long. Fascinating. And she talks about the ways in which her struggle actually uh, was significantly um, exacerbated by the fact that she could be beat up on the Internet. And they didn't even have the kind of Internet that we have today. So she talks about social media as 
uh, a weapon. Vis-a-vis the, the developmental piece, um, you know, I talked to my crosstown Muslim colleague uh, sometimes, and, and when we were introduced, he said to him, he said to me, listen, I'm 31 now, and I want to slap the 19-year-old version of myself, <laughs> right? That there's, and, and there's a reality to that, right? There's a reason that you pay more for your car insurance before you're 25, uh, and, and that is because your prefrontal cortex actually is not fully developed, and you guys know this about your own kids, right? Your decision-making is not fully developed until you're, until you're 25. So the big question is, right, yeah, social media is full of this stuff. Sometimes I talk about, like, I think about what would happen if you sat outside of Glotmart. Who knows Glotmart uh, and Pico Robertson, right? And you and you took nine hours of footage, right, of, of people elbowing each other or people coming out, and you asked them some kind of incendiary question, and then you just and then you put some scary music to it. Uh, you slowed some pieces down, and you distilled it down into about two and a half minutes um, of footage. I think you could make a really really scary movie about Glotmart. Right, and, and then, seriously, uh, and and so 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 I always like the, you know there was a, there was a video that was shot up at Berkeley. Who saw the Berkeley video, right? Where the guy's waving the ISIS flag, and then he's waving, and then he's waving the Israeli flag. So there's so they shot about nine hours of footage uh, on that campus, and the Berkeley students are incensed that that is what people are learning about Berkeley. Because the guy shot his ISIS flag in one place where there weren't really so many people, shot his Israel thing in another place. And by the way, a minute and a half of the two and a half minutes is him talking to a crazy person. Like, the guy's crazy, right? Okay, so there's crazy people in the world. Uh, and so we have to be really careful with social media. John. I, I think that uh, when you talk about students being radicalized, I, I don't think it's just Israel. I, it's a lot of things. I... You know, I see Che Guevara t-shirts and I, I just, I just shake my head. I do feel sometimes that this one is more serious. I, I do not like the shift from the anti-Israel into the anti-Semitism. It bothers me tremendously. By the same token, a lot of my former students cannot wait to get on Facebook and distance themselves from the stuff that's happening. Did you guys hear about the the UC Irvine and the American flag? UC Irvine votes to get rid of the American flag. It's five kids sitting in a building on some silly little committee, and they took down the flag in that building, and I had one UC Irvine student after another going, that's not us, that's not us, that's not us. So just for a little bit of balance, I think, a lot of students just get radicalized, and it's not just Israel. It's all kinds of things. It's across the board. I also believe that the shouting down of people is not just happening with, with Israeli speakers. I, I'm a conservative, and so I'm sort of used to our speakers getting shouted down at university, um, especially on campus. So I do agree that it is a problem. It is something that concerns me quite a bit. It's why I do what I do. But I also agree that we shouldn't be overly concerned. There's, there's got to be a balance there because, like he said, a lot of the students grow out of it. One more from the chair. Uh, do you think any of you, all of you, think we're doing enough in terms of outreach to Christian evangelicals, to Catholics, other people of goodwill outside the Jewish community? Uh, yeah, I've got the mic. Um, no. <laughs> and... and 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 can I say that I understand? Um, I I understand the history. Um, One of the things that I have noticed at the Federation is that the younger the Jewish person I'm working with, the more interested they are in working with me. Uh, 
I think there's a little bit of mistrust. I, I completely understand the mistrust, but I don't know if I can emphasize enough how pro-Israel the Catholic community is. Um, I'll, I'll just do this very quickly. I spoke to a group of uh, women in Orange County, mostly over 60, and there was about 100 in the room, and it was about Catholic-Jewish relations. I did a little research the night before, and I ran across an article that was troubling that since Vatican II, attendance has gone down, if we would just go back, and it, it threw me for a minute, and then something else occurred to me, and what I said to the women older Catholic women who grew up in the 50s, I said, if I have my choice between a Catholic church that's the pews are full on Sunday, but anti-Semitic, or a Catholic church that's half full and not anti-Semitic, the choice for me is easy. And I got a standing ovation. That's how pro-Israel we are. I would... Uh... I think with Pope Francis, you may have full pews and a non-anti-Semitic church. I'd like to. I'd like to add that uh, I I don't think we're doing enough to reach out to the Christian community. Matter of fact, um, at Stand with Us, we get a lot of requests, um, and we can't always meet those requests. There's requests for literature. There's requests for speakers. We're putting together a volunteer speakers bureau now. We're training speakers uh, to go out into the community and do this kind of outreach across the country. Uh, this is a real priority. It must be. And um, there are plenty of wonderful professionals probably in this room uh, that would like to speak, that would like to learn a PowerPoint. We can train you, and we would like uh, help going out and reaching out to people that are low-hanging fruit, like you describe, that would love Israel, want to know more, and really can represent us very, very well. Can I say something to that, too? I, I agree with Roz and with you a a hundred billion percent. I am very blessed to have Joel Osteen as a friend. Joel Osteen speaks to, what, 40, 50,000 people a week in his church. He sells out stadiums across America. He has a community that is so big. They love Israel. They love Jewish people. They support us. We do not reach out to them. If we reached out to them, they would be there hand in hand with us. And that's really something that we all need to think about. Okay, first question from the audience. How do you distinguish between protected speech and bigotry and hate? And how can we stop the latter and protect your former? This is, you want to start? Uh, this is a, a very big problem. We have, uh, this is a moment in time when this definition of what is hate speech and what is free speech is not exactly clear. Um, you know, I, we, we teach students about the three Ds. What, what, what makes something anti-Semitic? The three Ds are Nate, Natan Sharansky's three Ds. If it delegitimizes Israel, if it demonizes Israel, and if it presents a double standard against the state of Israel. Those three Ds, and we teach it in, in more detail. I'm not going to do it now, but, um, it, you know, the, there, there needs to be at some point where, where a professor or where groups are, are, are outright bigoted and nothing is said. 
Nothing is said by the administration. There is no distancing, which there should be, as we were talking about on social media. You know, that's not me. That's not us. The administration should seize the moment, and sometimes they do. They did at Irvine when it got really bad. They should seize the moment and stand back and say, you know, the administration distances itself from the speaker that that spoke yesterday uh, in in the quad and said X Y Z. There's not enough of that going on. So yeah, so the the line is very gray. It's very hard to distinguish. And even in meetings with uh, administrators, they're also they're like, well, how are you going to distinguish between anti-Semitic and anti? anti-Israel, so we helped them a little bit, and we passed our anti-Semitism resolution that has the the State Department's definition of anti-Semitism that it's kind of like human rights, like the resolutions towards human rights are anti-Semitic, and that's unallowed. And so there's, in attempting to fix that, it's important to make sure you distinguish that, like, okay, some criticism of Israel when it's actually beneficial is helpful, but when it gets to the point that you're just saying, oh, Jews this and Jews that, that's the point where it becomes um, where it becomes anti-Semitic and that is hate speech and that is against the students. And that's where in meetings with the administration where they're, they're finally realizing that and they're being able to distinguish between the two and we're helping them to form that line. Just as an aside, whether Roz mentioned uh, Nat- Natan Sharansky's uh, definition of anti-Semitism. It happens also to be the official definition of anti-Semitism for the United States Department of State. So it's nice for Natan Sharansky to be against, against anti-Semitism, but for the State Department to make it part of their official policy is even more impressive. Uh, and just as an aside, uh, you can worry about incidents of anti-Semitism on campus, but, and there will always be. They're not going to disappear. But I think the more profound question is how do administrators at universities respond to anti-Semitism. And I can tell you from my experience, uh, 18, 19 years ago at UCLA, the Chancellor Young, who was a wonderful chancellor, there was an incident on campus when the black student newspaper, Nomo, had on the front page an article about Jews, and it described them as, and pardon me, I'm in a temple, but I shouldn't be saying Jews as white Zionist fucks. We went to the administration. They refused to do anything. It was only after pressure was brought from the Board of Regents that they finally condemned it. And contrast that with just this past couple of a few weeks ago at UCLA with Chancellor Block, the Daily Bruin, the student government all condemned the, the interrogation of the young student at UCLA uh, because of her religious affiliation. And on top of that, which would never have happened in the 70s or 80s or 90s, the offenders apologized. That just that wasn't part of the, the script. 20 or 30 years ago. So uh, from my experience in fighting anti-Semitism, the act is almost less important than the response of society to it. And if the response is appropriate, that's something I think we ought to take seriously. Next question. This is directed to Roz, but of course anybody else can comment. What is the most strategic way for Christians to be involved? Which kind of response dovetails on the last question. Well, I have uh, spoken in many churches, and I usually close with learn more so you can teach more. Um, we have a lot of literature. Stand With Us does. We have produced uh, millions of different brochures, and uh, and literally millions have been distributed in different languages around the world. And I always encourage you too. It's not about, you know, the, the answer is for everybody. How can you help? You can learn more so you can teach more. 
um, be knowledgeable. I know, you know, with the kids, it's uh, you went to a Jewish uh, high school. So did our three kids. They went to Jewish high school. And they emerged Zionists. They really love the state of Israel. But if you cornered them and asked them a question, like uh, whatever the question, the most difficult questions coming up these days, um, they would be hard-pressed to answer. And it's a shame because they love Israel and they get scared, and so they try to get out of the conversation because they don't want to appear like they don't know something because that's the way it is when you're young. So we, we recommend that everybody, including everybody in this room, learn more so that you can be, have, have much richer conversations with your friends. Yeah, this is sort of a softball for me. <laughs> the, the first thing that I would say is, and it's something that I've worked hard towards over the last 12 years, and I, I think Faith would, would agree with this. We need to work together. And, I found early on in the Holy Land Project that we were not working together. It was the Jewish Federation was giving this to us. And that began to change about seven or eight years ago. A very good friend of mine, Rabbi Hal Greenwald, and I began, and we worked together, and we're friends. And, you know, my students are surprised that I have a rabbi on speed dial. But we're working together. We just did the training weekend for the teachers, and we alternate back and forth, and, and they can see. I would like to see the communities working together. Um, and I'll tell you something else. We need to start sending Christian and Catholic kids to Israel because they come back changed. They absolutely come back changed. When you said working together, I just want to add one more thing. Uh, there are There are churches like the Presbyterian Church, uh, where the uh, the people are pro-Israel statistically, but the leadership is not. And uh, there are people, Presbyterians, that want help and they want to they want to raise Israel's voice inside that environment. And one of the things that we do is we work together very closely with people who want to stand up for Israel, whether they're in the Presbyterian Church or any other church. Um, or any other environment. It's what we do everywhere if there are people that want to stand up for Israel. So when you said working together, it sort of ties in uh, a lot of what we do at Stand With Us. Another question. And this does refer back uh, in, inadvertently, I think, to the First Amendment question we had a few minutes ago. What can be done about all the professors who support BDS and the hatred they encourage in their classrooms? Are they? Do they exist? Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that they do exist. Um, in a lot of this stuff, it's it's also easy to pay attention to the most inflammatory but non-representative stuff that happens uh, on campus, right? So you, know, you can be in a room that Aton described, which is like, it feels hostile. And there's 500 people who are lined up, and, it, and it's not good to be in that room. And then you walk out, and you realize that, like, there's 29,000 other students on campus who are, like, in line for Carl's Jr., right? And, other, and they, have no, they, have no idea what's hap- you know, they have no idea what's happening in there. So it's, it's important when you think about an institution like, let's say, UCLA, right? There's 30,000 undergraduate students there. There's hundreds and hundreds of professors who are there. And we love to, like, focus like a laser beam on the ones who are problematic, forgetting that we have dozens of professors who are in Israel studies. We have dozens of professors who are in the Center for Jewish Studies, right? And those are UCLA-sponsored institutions. Vis-a-vis professors, so there's a couple of issues. One, you have academic freedom, and you have freedom of speech. Um, 
those those are sort of the inalienable rights of the you know of of the university. You can take on people, uh, and we have a whole set of resources that we provide to students who feel like they're being bullied by a TA or by a professor. Right? You can use the university apparatus to actually go after them, and the best way to go after them is having students who are part of their class say, "This is unacceptable to me." Students are actually extraordinarily powerful. They're able to get. Uh, meetings with the administrators that most of the adults in the room can't get, and they're able to sit and say, this is highly problematic, I want it stopped. You can then have a conversation even within the, even within academic freedom, uh, and freedom of speech about responsible speech. So, you know, we met with a, we met with a hated professor, uh, on campus who doesn't particularly know, he doesn't understand why he's hated. Um, and he said, well, you know, I don't understand. It was, it was a professional courtesy to be, you know, a co-sponsor for bringing Salida, uh, who's this disgraced professor and anti-Semite, uh, to campus who was sponsored by the Students for Justice in Palestine. Uh, it was, a, it was a professional courtesy to the other departments to bring him in. And if you speak their own language and you say, yeah, I understand that, but it was a discourtesy to everybody, to 4,000 of your colleagues and students and all of these people, uh, on campus. So you're reaching out to, you know, 10 different professors and being discourteous to 4,000 other people. He was like, oh. Ah, uh, maybe I think I get that, right? So you can, so you can take their language and you can flip it on the head. And they're actually receptive to that with the exception of the Edward Saeeds of the world and with the exception of the, of the true radicals who you may be successful taking on through the university apparatus. But tenure is a, tenure is a strong, uh, institution. I'll add something to this that's a little bit different. So we're finding students are intimidated by professors. Uh, for example, our own daughter was intimidated uh, at UCLA in honors anthropology class uh, where the professor actually made a terrible comment and she asked about the comment and from then on she went from an A to a D. Uh, she needed to drop the class eventually. She did go for help to the dean, uh, but then the entire department crashed down on her at UCLA in the anthropology department. Um, and it took her a while, took months to recover from this. There is intimidation. Even professors are intimidated. Pro-Israel professors are intimidated. Uh, Alan Dershowitz talks about this all the time. He says that even, you know, he gets calls uh, after he makes a presentation on a university. They say, wow, great job, Alan. And he says, why are you whispering? You know, because they're afraid to speak up. And he, he's constantly talking about how his colleagues are not speaking up on campus. There is intimidation. Uh, Jonathan Edelman, who, who is a professor in, in, uh, Denver, uh, talks about how he is known as too Jewish, quote unquote, and his, uh, his colleagues don't like him and they don't, you know, they treat him a certain way, even with tenure. So there is this problem and I don't want to minimize it. I do want to underscore that, you know, it's not always easy to approach some of these people. If you look at life as a bell as a bell-shaped curve, uh, the people on the far right and left, okay, they're going to be difficult, you know, very difficult to approach. But where I do agree with all this is that we are in the business of really reaching out to the 80%. That's where we need to focus. We need to understand there are going to be these professors who are going to say crazy things in the classroom about Israel, black and white statements. And, and we're going to need to understand that's going to happen. On the other hand, we also need to understand that we have a responsibility. We have a responsibility. Our students have a responsibility. When they're finished with the class, they should be saying something about what that professor did. And, and more and more, we're encouraging students to, to, to document and make sure everything is about documentation. 
The more they document, the better it is. So it's a mixed answer. Okay, we're at 9 o'clock. I'll ask each of the panelists to give us a one-minute summation and the message they'd like you to take home with you. We'll go from Roz back to John. So I think the message I'd like to give you is please do get involved. Um, learn more. And uh, uh, we welcome your involvement at Stand With Us. And, uh, you know, I think that the, the more we learn, you, we may not agree on things. It doesn't matter. What matters is that you're involved and that you can have a conversation. So I invite you to do that more than you ever have before because now is the time. And the other side, people that hate Israel, um, that are planning the plans and running the campaigns, um, they're doing it. They're together. They've got their volunteers, thousands of them, and we don't. We have to be smart, and we have to get going. We can all take our connections and all get together to build this bridge of peace together. It takes every single one of us. And what I'd like to leave with is to urge you to get active, to sign up for things, when stand with us, send petitions, to sign them, to get them out there, to engage your friends. When Creative Community for Peace sends petitions, you sign them, you get engaged, you bring in your friends, you forward everything to your friends. The more people we can bring into this, the more people that can help, the stronger we can be, we hopefully one day soon will stop all this. Rabbi Aaron with his own mic. Yeah, <laughs> no, but I'm going to pass it on. Um, I, I, I want you to remember this. It is a great, it is a phenomenal time to be a Jewish college student today. Don't believe the videos, the Facebook, the social media, all of that stuff. I went to USC. USC used to have a quota on how many Jews could come to that school. I was recruited by a Jewish recruiter or something. And I would encourage you that if you have any questions or if you want to reach out or if you have questions about you, what UCLA is like or want to know anything, uh, you can find us. You, you have our names. You have Bruins for Israel. Any, like... We really we have an alumni newsletter to keep you in touch with what's going on, and that's the biggest thing that you can do is to understand what goes on on our college campuses, and so you can tell your friends what happens, and that there's no no misinformation, and that you make sure to send your students so that they can become future leaders, and that we can keep that community vibrant so it doesn't die out, and this just takes over. So. High school teacher loves to sum up with bullet points, so let me give you just a couple. First thing I would say is please don't worry too much when you see some of these mainstream denominations um, divesting because I believe they are a very small percentage of the Christian community. Um, so I, I wouldn't overly worry about that. Second thing I would say is get them while they're young. When my students are educated about Israel before they graduate from high school, they are less likely to be radicalized when they get into college. You have friends out there. If I can leave you with one thought, please know you have friends out there. A lot more than you may think. Thank you for having me.
there are publications out front, flyers or whatever, but I imagine the Temple can make their contact information available. I, just I, like I also put my business card on yes. here, so if you want to be in touch with people. Uh, I would just, just like to include before the rabbi speaks, thank you all for coming and saying however dreary you might have felt coming in, I don't think anybody can be glum and uh, depressed after listening to these five individuals talking about dealing with this very interesting problem. Thank you very much. So we want to thank uh, everyone who's taken their time to be here tonight. We have gifts uh, for you from uh, our congregation. Uh, the photographs that you'll see in these amazing uh, books uh, are by our congregant, Eric Lawton. The music is by our cantor, Chaim Franco. Etan, because we didn't know you would be here tonight, you don't have one. So you get to order whatever KI gift you would like, um, free of charge. Uh, we have a policy here at KI of uh, protecting the environment as well, so you each get to take your bottle home as swag. Um, uh, we So we really encourage uh, all of us to think about uh, making bottles fashionable uh, that, that we can reuse. And we want to thank everyone who uh, participated in making tonight so successful and is making Israel Matters Week so thought out and so well constructed. Uh, and they do so much for us. Our Vice President, Lori Krause, for a learning and engagement here at KI. And Millie Wexler, who uh, really heads up all of the programming for our adult education. The Silton family for funding uh, this week, uh, this week of programming here at KI. And if you're on the Israel Matters Committee, if you would stand, please. These are the folks you can go to. Suggest to them. What you want to see, what you want to talk about, they are the people charged with handling uh, all the ways that we want and need to engage with the topic, this, the gabillion topics there are uh, around Israel. Thank you for coming tonight, uh, and we hope that you will come to the rest of Israel Matters Week uh, tomorrow night beneath the helmet from high school to the home front, a documentary about how the Israeli army serves as a, uh, a way to bring people into uh, Israeli culture, and then our community-wide Israel celebration in honor of Yom HaAtzma'ut, Israel's Independence Day, which of course follows on the heels of Yom HaShoah and Yom HaZikaron. So remembering, and we as Jews, we say Kaddish, and then we dance. We remember, we mourn, and then we eat and we dance. So come eat and dance with us on Friday nights. Uh, we'll have Israeli dancing after services. Erev Tov to all of you. Thank you for being here.